0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gallup, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I would like to thank Courtney Nelson for introducing me to today's guest, Claire Fouquier. Claire is a principal at Highland Capital Partners. Highland Capital is one of the oldest venture capital funds that invests primarily in Series A and focuses on early growth stage. Some of their investments include Harry's, Red the Runway, and ClearBank. Previously, Claire was a principal at Corrigin Ventures and focuses on investing in technology for small and medium businesses and consumer. In this episode, we explore the milestones at Series A for technology startups and the purchase behaviors of small and medium businesses. It was a fascinating conversation, especially around SMB. So without further ado, here's Claire. So Claire... Thank you so much for coming on, especially during these you know, pretty unprecedented times. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. This is uh, a real honor and delight.
0: Pleasure having you on the show. Thanks again so much. So let's start out very early back in your career. What initially attracted you to finance and then specifically venture capital?
1: Yeah, I, I kind of want to separate those two things because I never felt like I was a finance person. And I think that In venture, we're lucky because we're sort of not finance people. And I've told people that if I must be bucketed into the finance world, I'm kind of in like the fun finance. So, so yeah, yeah. So um, I got into investment banking because I was a finance major. I was drawn to the numbers and the math and thinking about the economic implications of finance, which I felt was really interesting. Um, But of course, when you're you know 20, 21, and deciding on what you want to do after school there's sort of one career path for finance majors and that's going into investment banking. So that's where I sort of delineate it and say that I don't ever really thought of myself as a finance person. I sort of just ended up on that career path thinking it would be a good launching pad. And it was, I think I learned a lot. I think I learned a lot of what I didn't want as well. Um, And then I moved on from that. What drew me to venture is totally different. For me, it's this real connection with, how we're changing the world, how we're thinking about where the world is in five to 10 years, and interacting with the people that are enabling that. I think it's probably one of the absolute best jobs in the world when you feel like you were the dumbest person every day. And I mean that in a humble way. It is fascinating to talk to all these industry experts and people that are devoting their life to something that is really cool and highly relevant and tangible to what we're doing Um, as consumers day to day and how we live our lives. And so it's sort of the story arc of being part of something that's bigger, I think, that drew me to VC and less sort of the the aspects that I would attribute to finance, if I I can sort of answer that from a roundabout perspective.
0: For folks that I know that it entered in VC and kind of went, you know, worked a couple of years in investment banking. Similar sentiments I've I've heard is that, you know, really grateful for my investment banking experience, learned a ton, but really happy it's kind of over. Wanted to talk a bit about your experience first working in seed and then how like the milestones change. Uh, at the Series A and, and, and Series B rounds, and and what you're more focused on it at, at at Highland.
1: Yeah, that that's a good path to go down, and I think there's a lot of meat there that probably changes at least from my perspective relatively often. But my most recent working theory, I think, is that seed investors are really fantastic when they can be sort of product oriented when they have a view on the entrepreneurial journey. And that is not to be taken lightly. I think that that skill set is incredibly valuable, and I'm incredibly envious of it, having only spent a tiny, tiny portion of my career on the operating side. I think that once we get later and later, there's sort of this emphasis on evaluating business models and thinking about the sort of story arc and stage progression of a company rather than just being so focused on product. And so For me, I felt like I almost didn't have the stomach for being a professional seed investor. And um, my investment banking background, as good as it was, I think also made me much more apt to poke holes into things. And so that was sort of, you know, a bit of my mindset coming into things. And Series A is fantastic for me because the best part of this job in my perspective is working with founders, as I mentioned. And I think that at Series A, you still get to spend all that great time working operationally with founders on some of the biggest challenges that they'll be facing going forward. But there's a little bit more of the business model to pull apart and to analyze. And so it's sort of this perfect marriage of my background. Having said all that, uh, I do some angel investing, and I get to sort of keep my feet wet in that arena to really make bets on people that I think are exceptional, and and I get to sort of scratch that itch, which is a really nice little marriage, sort of an added side bonus that I love about Series A that I hadn't fully wrapped my mind around is that just the way the portfolio construction works, seed investors are writing many, many, many more checks. Right? Um, at Corigen, we wrote, you know, for per person, we wrote probably three to five more times the amount of checks that that we do now, or that I do now at Series A and B. And so just based on that portfolio construction, um, you naturally can't be as close with all of your portfolio companies throughout the cycle of the company. And so there's this natural progression of sort of rolling off the board and, and regular conversation with your companies at probably Series B or C or something like that. Whereas at A, because you're you're making sort of more concentrated investments, you stay with that company up until exit. And that's really special to me because I like creating that really deep bond with founders. I always felt it was kind of sad when the natural progression happened and the company had sort of graduated onto series B and C and and things just got so busy that all of a sudden our check-ins went from, you know, every week to every two weeks to every month to every quarter or something like that. So I like really being in the trenches with people i think that's fun
0: great point that you're saying about investing in series a and that you don't write as many checks per year do you feel that at the series a stage you maybe have to become more specialized in terms of the actual industries itself knowing those particular maybe business models or metrics
1: yeah you know, that's a really good question and something that i struggle with and i think that every vc probably thinks about pretty regularly. Yeah, I would imagine. I think there's pros and cons to specialization. I think the general thread, though, that you're getting at is that you need to be much more focused and much more thoughtful with your deal sourcing, I think, rather than seed. Seed is very difficult in my mind to be uh, thematic or to be um, doing any meaningful outbound sourcing just because it is so based on network and based on happenstance and who you might meet, who leads you to somebody else versus at A and B, you can be a bit thematic because you have generally companies that have been funded in previous rounds. so You get to sort of watch them as they progress up to your stage. Um, and you can be a little bit picky in sort of who you reach out to and and sort of Go hunting, if that makes
0: sense. No, it does. It does. I wanted to also talk about, you know, maybe the current landscape at the Series A and B uh, stages. It seems like there's now this proliferation, or and, and has been for the past few years, uh, how there's so much, you know, seed and seed-specific funds. Just how are you thinking about Series A and Series B as a as just a, a, as a general landscape?
1: It's funny you mention that. And if I'm hearing this correctly, your perception is that there's more seed funds than there are A and B funds. Is that right?
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah,
1: I, I see it the opposite actually. I think there's very few dedicated seed funds versus Series A and B funds, and. I think on sheer number, there's a lot of early stage funds because there's a lot of great emerging managers who are focused on earlier stage because they have smaller checks to write. Um, But in terms of sort of the big behemoth funds, I think Series A and B is much more of an established category. So it's interesting that you see it from a different perspective in my mind. But when I think of funds that are purely C, that are institutional funds, you know, maybe on Fund 2 or 3 that are willing to lead rounds and really sit on the board and sort of play that institutional seed role, I don't think of a ton of funds. And I think Corigen is one of them, which sort of made us stood out, which was exciting to really be a seed exclusive fund. Um, but then I think once we get to Series A and beyond, there's a lot of multi-stage funds and there's much more capital floating around at the Series A and B stage, which in my opinion, at least makes it uh, more competitive to a certain degree because there's less of a chance of finding a company that no one else has talked to.
0: Wow. It's really interesting how you're seeing it. This is probably where we should have started at the very beginning, but how do you think about Series A?
1: <laughs> Good question. I, I think the benchmarks and KPIs and all that stuff kind of fluctuate as time goes on and as we you know move through economic cycles and stuff like that. But um, I think of Series A as the second sort of true institutional round, I'll say. So at, at Corigen, we thought about Seed as the first institutional round. And so the company had maybe raised some angel rounds or friends and family rounds or something like that. And this was the first time that they were really thinking about the you know, transformation of the company into sort of a business where they were putting in place governance and a board and things like that. And, and pre the Seed round, they were probably testing product, had an MVP, had some early sales, had some pilots in place or early sales with consumers, et cetera. Seed to A, in my view, was always to test out a couple hypotheses that were narrowing and narrowing in terms of true product market fit. And then at A, I think about it as sort of real product market fit, where a especially consumer company has sort of the operating playbook in their minds where they know how to acquire customers with relative certainty. So the band of customer acquisition costs, for instance, starts to narrow. And they have relative certainty that if they apply, you know, X amount of dollars to marketing, they'll get X amount of dollars in revenue. Um, and they have a relatively good example of what their ideal customer looks like, their supply chain, all those various things. And so for me, that really sort of indicates without thinking about you know, the KPIs that can move. It's sort of that, that true product market fit that we know the company is ready to take that much larger round of capital and apply it to the business and have some idea of what the output then will be.
0: That makes sense. So it's like a more of a stabilized CAC. I've I've talked to other investors too, and they say like, at the Series A, that's really when a company should really have product market fit.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I, I don't think it means necessarily that the company's got everything figured out. You know, I think, I think there's a lot of caveats that we and founders could throw on things that things can change quickly. And we all know that, especially right now, right? Like a lot of safer industries from an investment perspective have been thrown on their head during the COVID environment. But Series A doesn't mean necessarily that the company is you know, off to the races. There's going to be operational challenges and I think a good investor can help with a lot of that stuff. Um, but I think it does mean that once a company's raising series A, they're not spending expensive venture dollars figuring out product market fit and figuring out who best to sell their product to. They sort of have an idea. Now it's time to really execute and, and pour that fuel on the fire.
0: I wanted to also talk about your like transition from a seed to a series A. Like what was maybe the toughest thing from changing from uh, you know from Corigen seed investing to Series A investing,
1: very quick kind of cop out answer is that the hardest part is um, is giving up the relationships you have with your existing companies and relinquishing board duties. And so I still spend a lot of time with my portfolio companies from Corigen because I just simply really miss those founders. But I know that's not what you were getting at. Um, the 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 trickiest thing I think, or the biggest sort of difference, is The sourcing machine, I think. At Seed, it is, so my sort of view at Seed is that it's typically the first time that founders are accessing institutional capital. They may have had startups in the past, and so they may sort of know the process, but in general, there probably isn't existing institutional investors on the cap table with which that founder can get some help and introductions and talking to great people and stuff like that. So at Seed, it's sort of, to a certain degree, a bit of a numbers game, which is why there's a lot of networking involved and a lot of chat amongst a lot of different Seed investors to try to get deal flow. And that includes a ton of different outbound facing things like demo days and coffee chats and introductions to founders through other founders and meetups and happy hours and all those various things. At Series A, my view is that the, the sourcing machine or how those companies finds us is very different. And that at that point, um, those companies tend to have institutional investors at that point, which they get coaching from in order to raise series A, which is a great thing. Um, but it means for me, I need to be much more proactive in keeping those companies on my radar. I need to start building a relationship six months out because the the connection between the two of us isn't so happenstance based. It's much more, Deliberate, and then I need to have probably a little bit more of a view or a thesis on what the company is doing because I'm now going to be doing much more diligence and diving into the business model and various other things. And I find it's harder to take a bet on big macro trends at Series A versus it is at seed because seed tends to be about you know smart people and product and stuff like that, which I think Series A is as well on top of sort of some of the metrics and and stuff that we talked about.
0: So when you're doing your outreach and outbound, are you reaching out to companies directly to th- that are on your radar to aff- to like establish relationships maybe six months out when they would be raising A's, or are you almost like relying on your network of seed investors to you know think of you when they're raising a Series A?
1: It's both, I'd say. So I typically have a couple of theses I'm working through, and I will. Um, both you know check in with my seed investor friends make sure they know the theses that I'm working on make sure they know the types of companies I'm looking at so that hopefully I'm one of the first calls when one of their portfolio companies is raising and or thinking about raising um, but I'll also keep tabs on companies I hear about that are funded or companies that are in adjacent spaces to companies I've already chatted with or you know various other trends that sort of pick up on what I've looked at um, and so I'd say it's like everything in venture there's no perfect process but it's it's a combo of sort of the network and and building up that network planting the flag of our brand and and telling people what we do and sort of hunting for some of the extraordinary opportunities that um we can try to create a proprietary relationship with earlier on than other people. No,
0: that that that's fascinating and, and and something that we actually haven't really talked about at the series A part about how you actually source and the differences between sourcing at seed and series A. I'd love to learn a little bit more about your due diligence process.
1: Probably the same priorities as it is at seed. It's just a little bit more of a digging process. And so at Highland we think about people, market and product and in that order. People have to be there for sure, right? So we have to believe that these founders are the founders we want to work with for the next five to 10 years. We have to believe they're the extraordinary people that are going to tackle the problem they've laid out in front of them. And we do a lot of testing in that area. And that can be over a number of different calls. That's a ton of reference checks that is speaking with um a lot of members of the team to hear about their perception of the founders and the leadership that exists at the company um and so a a lot of sort of pressure tested on that side um market is probably the next most important thing and then product thereafter and and it kind of follows that that same um methodology that i just mentioned um in that we need it to be really big market we need to test the market we need to make sure that The the company is well-suited to enter that market, to really take market share. That's sort of, you know, a lot of uh, customer calls, a lot of industry calls, a lot of speaking to people in our network who might have um, a proprietary view that we might want to tap into. And then on the product side, that's really digging into the business model. Um, And that can be everything from, you know, go-to-market strategy, monetization strategy, the financial model, and sort of the various things that are wrapped up in that
0: what do you mean by testing the market?
1: I think it starts sort of top down probably. And so the top bit is really the total addressable market. And so, right, so that needs to be a huge market. But then when I say test, I think there's sort of a big difference between, you know, the headline TAM number, but then what's actually addressable for a company and how much they can really take market share from incumbents, create market share, if that's the type of market that they're in, if this is something new. how much they can actually deliver and the value and and the type of customer set that would resonate with the product. sort. So I sort of mean poking holes in that way, getting a little bit lay- deeper of a layer than just sort of the overall TAM number.
0: Got it. Got it. So of course, coronavirus, very top of mind, you know, how has this impacted how you invest?
1: Yeah. You know, we're really lucky. Um, Highland is a 33 year old fund and so has a very stable, um, Lineup of investors, and so we're we're certainly open for business. Our portfolio companies are in a really safe spot right now, which is very lucky for us. And so we're we're in a good place. Um, we're certainly open for business. We are looking for deals. Um, we are in process with one deal right now, which you know hopefully will close, but TBD. Um, and so it definitely means that we're willing to do deals. I think we're changes for us is that the bar is just that much higher now um it's just a little bit harder to get deals done it has to be something that's really really special and something unique and something that we think has real lasting and staying potential because the capital markets are a little bit tighter and we can't necessarily just rely on you know multiple rounds of funding for the next couple years not that we necessarily want to do that before anyway Um, And it probably means that we will take advantage of some extraordinary situations like companies that had uh, maybe unfortunate funding structures in the past or maybe have investors who are unable to fund future rounds of companies or things like that where we can um, get into some companies that we think, again, are really high quality companies, but might have some advantageous financing situations for us.
0: Has the diligence process slowed down at all? Or are you not seeing as many new companies these days?
1: We're we're certainly writing checks and the diligence process has probably stayed the same. It's just sort of the bar and the threshold of the companies we look at has gotten higher. So it has to be a pretty special company or a pretty special situation for us to invest. It doesn't necessarily mean that... Uh, you know, the diligence process has changed or that we evaluate things differently. It just means that, um, you know, we have to feel something really great.
0: How has coronavirus changed your focuses or your theses that you developed prior to coronavirus?
1: I don't know if I have anything right now other than some views I had before coronavirus that I feel like have strengthened. And so... And I, I sort of want to make that distinction because I think it's easy to go to some of the obvious things like remote work and remote education and things like that, because, you know, why wouldn't everybody focus on those kinds of things? And I think there's a ton of opportunity there. I say that I sort of had views before that have strengthened in that on the e side, I'm incredibly bullish on... Um, the pipes and infrastructure behind e-commerce because I think there's just so much opportunity on that side. And when we look at e-commerce penetration, it's incredibly low compared to retail sales. And that's something that I was really focused on before coronavirus. Now I'd say I'm even more bullish on it because I think that every retailer who's got a significant portion of their sales from brick and mortar is now thinking about how they can make their e-com uh, more efficient. So I think in a way you could sort of make the argument that e-com has taken a bit of a hit right now, and it will take a bit of a hit because discretionary income probably will tighten, which is probably true. But when I think about the next five to 10 years or so, I just think there's absolutely no way that e e-com won't grow. It's just so inevitable to me that we're doing things in a much more um, digitally connected way. So, so that's kind of one example, I'd say. And then uh, I sort of had a bit of a thesis before on um, some SMB software and some workplace collaboration software and tools, and that seems to be strengthened like times a hundred because we're all working remote and it seems to be working somewhat okay. <laughs> and so I like that kind of stuff, and and you and I had talked about this offline. I like that kind of stuff because I think some of the consumer habits and patterns match the consumer side a little bit more for SMBs rather than enterprise. And that sales cycle is really appealing, but can create some really nice, sticky businesses, kind of like the enterprise side. So it's sort of this like nice marriage. And so those views obviously are very strongly held now because I think we're seeing that even if we all can go back to work, and I mean us who can work remotely, the fortunate ones who can do that, it might take us a long time to do that. And so we feel really comfortable going into offices or getting on planes or taking Ubers everywhere if we don't necessarily have to. And so therefore I think these tools sort of you know, give us greater flexibility. For example, I'm seeing chatter amongst some VCs that people are trying to think about what the next tool is beyond Zoom because we're sort of already seeing some of the limitations on Zoom, right? And so it's sort of, it, we're already as VCs in a way and and technologists of, of early tech trends, I think thinking about what comes after Zoom, right? A lot of the corporate world is sort of just getting onto Zoom, but we're sort of thinking, okay, now what? How can we make this better? And I'm sure there are founders that are working on it. I would love to talk to them.
0: I hear you. I think there's a lot of innovation that's coming in video communication. What are what are maybe some other businesses or, or, or even business models that you're focused on? The e
1: one remains something that I focus on, especially in the consumer space. Otherwise, I'm starting to look now, and and have been before, anything that can be sort of an end consumer experience through a marketplace or through um, a a digital distribution channel. This is incredibly cliche, but I've been chatting with a telemedicine provider for the last six months or so. And now I've sort of really accelerated my conversations with them. Because again, this seems like something that is not going to go away from a telemedicine perspective. I got sort of lucky that I've been talking to the company before. Um, But that's an example, I think, of my lens on consumer, which is really to think about anything that impacts the life of the end consumer. And I think about that in both terms of the sort of end, you know, consumer with their discretionary income, but also um, SMBs or mom and pops or small businesses or sort of the prosumer mentality. Um, that's interesting to me. And so that category is probably what a lot of people are looking at right now, which is things like digital health, digital finance, digital education, workplace tools and selling tools, as I mentioned, for small proprietors and mom and pops and stuff like that. And, and the marketplaces sort of behind that, the two-sided marketplaces.
0: Thanks for that. Those are quite a few exciting trends. I wanted to also touch on a point that you've made a couple times now about you've been focused on products that are for small, medium businesses and how small, medium businesses' purchase behavior are more similar to consumers than enterprise. I wanted, if you wouldn't mind elaborating of what you mean by that, that'd be great.
1: So I think about it in terms of, you know, the SMB end consumer, I think, um, is sort of limited in their budget. Um, the way that they buy is very different from an enterprise. It typically is a self-serve process. Um, it is typically handled, I would assume, by a marketing department, content-led often. Things like Shopify and Etsy and those storefronts are often um, attracting consumers through content, through digital marketing, that kind of stuff, versus having a, an enterprise sales force with, you know, six to 12 month selling period and really lumpy contracts that need to go through four, five, six layers of review within a company before they can get implemented. Similarly, the adoption process of the product tends to look much more like a consumer adoption pro- process sometimes a little bit heavier with sort of a bit of an onboarding and a sort of customer success person or that kind of thing. But we also have that in the consumer world versus maybe, you know, a two to six month pilot program or implementation or service fee implementation or something like that on the enterprise software side of things. So I think that my sort of view on that is that um, these businesses hopefully can scale a little bit more quickly, the average contract values tend to be much smaller, obviously, than enterprise for obvious reasons. You need much more volume, but because they're sort of self-serve, they tend to be um, one through digital marketing and content and stuff like that. They sort of think and act a little bit more like a consumer rather than start having sort of a real enterprise sales engine within the company.
0: Thanks for that. I think that's really well put about small, medium businesses and and how their buying patterns are similar to consumer.
1: I'm just trying to stretch the definition of consumer. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) After you invest in a company, let's talk about how you work with the founders and businesses. And what do you see first time founders after raising a series A might struggle with the most?
1: Yeah. So the the first sort of tenant I'd say is that we both have to be excited to work with each other. I've seen that the best partnerships and the best way for me to add value. And I think vice versa for a founder to feel comfortable to come and ask for advice and resources and the network that we can bring is if we both are excited to work together. Um, I I think the moment a founder thinks about it as a check and the moment the investor thinks about it as a money-making opportunity, then you you lose some of that magic, um, which I think is special about this business and kind of gets back to what you mentioned in your first question, which is that I don't think of this necessarily as just finance, um, it's a lot more fun than that. But I, I think that for first-time founders, the best thing we can bring that I wanna emphasize is the role of an institutional investor and an institutional board member, right? So it's not my job in my view to be changing product or changing you know, go-to-market strategy or trying to change the founder's view of the vision of the company right like that's the founder's job they're living this so much more than i am they're living and breathing the problem and i've invested in the founder because i have the utmost faith that utmost faith that they are the best person to be running the company and to tackling this challenge and i want them to know that i believe in them right um however there's a lot of stuff that a founder has to worry about on sort of the corporate business building side that you sort of don't think about when you're building a product, right? Or when you're launching a business or when you're trying to get customers that we can do and we've seen over and over and over again. And that's things like governance and thinking about um, how to hire the right people at the right time, how to think about corporate layers and how to think about the hierarchy within the company, how to think about when to enable managers to take over certain roles versus others. It's how to think about fundraising and cash management. It's how to think about, you know, the long-term views and strategy of the business, and to be a partner to make those decisions with them. It's sort of how to anticipate all of those things from a board level that the founder might not necessarily know because they've probably never been through it before. Whereas with our fund, we've got a 33-year history, and amongst that, we've got I think 47 IPOs and 100-ish M&A outcomes or something like that, and so we should have seen some of this stuff and that's i think the value that we can bring is is to bring that sort of knowledge of pattern recognition so we don't have to reinvent the wheel for the founder every time we tend to be very even keeled and very steady because we've seen so much in the past too right and so our view is really to be a partner to the founder in both good times and bad times because i think we all recognize that even with all those great exits and outcomes there's never a company that only has good times that just doesn't exist and so that sort of even keel of seeing things for many, many years, I think can be very helpful in balancing for a founder when they realize that we're, you know, their partner and we can be the first call when things are not going well because they're not by themselves. That makes a lot of sense.
0: What is one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital?
1: I wish, I wish there was a way for... Um, founders and investors to test out their working relationship before they started working together. That's sort of a real like touchy feely pie in the sky kind of one. But I do believe that there is a kind of magic when uh, an investor and a founder have a really good relationship. And I think that a lot of founders can get really turned off of VCs if they have the wrong experience or have the wrong investor in their company. You know, I've heard, uh, founders before say they, you know, never want to take VC dollars or whatever again, which is a totally fine thing to say. But oftentimes I think it's because they've either had a meddlesome board member or, you know, something hasn't quite gone the right way. Um, And vice versa. I think for VCs, you know, sometimes there are certain founders who just have a certain working style and those things don't click. And so maybe if I had to answer off the top of my head right now, it would be to have a way to sort of pressure test the relationship before, you know, to date before getting married.
0: No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, cause of course, you know, it's, uh, as we've talked about a lot on this show, it's not just a check. It's, it's a relationship, you know, you're obviously going to be involved anywhere from five, five, 7 10 years.
1: I guess that sort of goes back to again, why A and B can be a fun stage because you can build a relationship with a founder for a year or two or so. And that's not quite the same as being in board meetings, but um, you know, that that's kind of fun too, doing deals with founders when you've known them for a year or two.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um and and also in some ways, I'd imagine too, just to kind of do on the pressure testing side, talking to previous investors in the company, although they would probably sing the praises of the company and the founders. So it might be tough to, you know, but even just being be able to maybe do a little bit of diligence on how the board meetings actually go or, you know, just um, a little bit of, of, of what that cadence is like.
1: Yeah, totally. We try to do the best we can, but there is a bit of a dance of no one wanting to show their cards too much.
0: Of course, <laughs> of course. What's one book that inspired you personally, and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: Professionally, I keep going back to Radical Candor by Kim Scott. It's fantastic. I think of thinking about the motivators and drivers of individual people. It's it's technically a book that is written uh, for managers on how to be a good manager to their. Um, to their employees, but I think it's so much more than that, to be honest, and and it's taught me a lot, I think, of interpersonal relationships and skills within a workplace, um, which is pretty great. And then on the personal side, I tend to skew to memoirs a lot. I love memoirs. And so I really like The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls. And I really like Educated by Tara Westover. I think those are fantastic books.
0: Cool. No, that's great. And no one's mentioned any of these books before on the show. So very original, very original. What's one piece of advice that you have maybe for a founder that's raised a seed, looking to raise an A, um, and are kind of in that stage of their business?
1: I'd say lean on seed investors. They're there to help. I think that from my vantage point, most often than not, um, founders don't rely on VCs enough. There's a reason why we're talking about all of this stuff, like it's more than a check and whatever. And I think that um, founders are so good at being hard workers and crushing hours and stuff like that, but forget to ask for help sometimes. And investors are there for this exact thing, which I just mentioned, which is to be the institutional investor. They should be good at least at helping you raise a Series A. And so focus as much of your effort as possible on the business and get your investors
0: to help you with the Series A process. I think that's a great piece of advice. So founders, put your investors to work. Well, Claire, Thank you so much for coming on. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it.
1: I did too. You asked some great questions. This was fun. Thank you.
0: And there you have it. It was such a treat having Claire on. I particularly enjoyed our conversation about the purchase behavior of small and medium businesses. If you'd like to keep up with Claire, you can follow her on Twitter at Claire Folkier. This will also be in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you are a founder and work on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.